Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, November 16th, 2023. We are in the middle of award season. We know some of the awards. We don't yet know all of the awards, although you might by the time you listen to this. And I think, I think we have a little bit of numerical context that you won't hear anywhere else but here. So get excited for that, because I know I am. We're going to talk a little bit about the bizarre free agency case of Cody Bellinger, maybe a couple of the other qualifying offer guys, and get into what might be unprecedented, but a possible Juan Soto deal. Matt, as we speak right now, uh, the Rookie of the Year awards have been issued. The Cy Young Award have been issued. We, sitting here, do not yet know the results of the MVP tonight. I think we've got a pretty solid guess as to who's going to win. Before I get into my very interesting fact... Were you surprised by any of what we've seen so far? Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson for rookie, Garrett Cole and Blake Snell for Cy? No, not at all. I think it's been pretty much pretty much chalk. I mean, with Carroll and Henderson, it was pretty cool because, you know, entering the year, um, I, I don't know about other prospect outlets, but MLB.com, MLB Pipeline had those guys as the number one and number two prospects in all of baseball. So it's pretty cool that the guys that you know we had ranked number one and number two ended up being the rookies of the year. So that's it's nice when the it's nice when a plan comes together uh, in, in in that way. And then the Cy Young, I mean, Cy Young is I really think has become like the weirdest award to vote for because. We know so much about what pitchers can and can't control, right? And there's this there's this constant push pull of like, hey, I know in reality this guy allowed the fewest runs, but he probably wasn't the best pitcher. And like, how do I kind of make sense of those two things? Of like these sort of like quality of contact, expected runs versus like here's what actually happened. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that's more true in the NL this year than in the AL. Blake Snell. You know, it's the funny thing. Every time like I hear somebody talking about Blake Snell, it inevitably comes back to he's a really good quality pitcher, and I just don't enjoy watching him pitch. <laughs> like, the aesthetics of pitching shouldn't be included in the Cy Young. And like that's not a dig against him. It just he doesn't go deep into games, and he's always nibbling, and there's always like a ton of full counts. I didn't realize this till I looked there. So I kind of knew offhand that he'd gotten off to a slow start and then had a pretty nice round at the end of the season. I didn't realize how insane it was. So in his first nine starts, a 540 ERA, in his final 23 starts, four plus months of baseball, a 120 ERA with a line against of 156, 273, 217, a 217 slugging percentage over four months of baseball is like obscene. And even though I'm not sure he's, I don't want to say he's not deserving, I probably would have voted for him. I think his case is maybe one of the weaker cases of recent Cy Youngs because you know, he led the league in walks and didn't go deep into games and all that. Uh, but this this kind of goes to um, the interesting fact I wanted to share, right? Would you agree with me that tonight Shohei Otani is going to win in the AL, Ronald Acuna is going to win in the NL, convincingly, perhaps unanimously? I think the Mookie Betts case faded at the end, but if not unanimously, overwhelmingly. Would you agree with me on that? Yes, no question. Okay. So if that happens, here's what we've seen so far. Uh, both rookie of the years were unanimous. Garrett Cole was unanimous. Blake Snell got 28 of the 30 votes and uh, credit to the writers. One picked Logan Webb and one picked Zach Gallon for first place votes. If the two MVPs are unanimous tonight, 30 for 30, 
178 of the 180 first place votes will go to the winners, which is 99%. And so if you go back to 1967, and I chose that year because after the first the, the first 10 years or so of the Cy Young, it was one Cy for the entire sport. That was the year they split it into one for AL and one for NL. And the way the votes have been cast and how many guys you can put on your ballot have changed over the years. But just looking at the percentage of first place votes that the winners have gotten, this would be by far the most overwhelming season. 99%. Uh, the previous high was 93% in 1997. And I think that backs up the eye test that these none of these are surprises, right? Like if you had guessed a week ago, hey, who are the six winners going to be? You would have known. I think the only surprise is by how many votes Blake Snell got first place for. Um, but that really backs up what we're seeing. I like being able to put numbers to stuff like that. It's it's pretty wild how how overwhelming it is, and I think that like as you kind of said, the NL, the NL Cy Young was like a really weird test case because I think that like the fact that he got twenty eight of thirty. On the one hand, I'm not surprised, but like I kind of expected. I mean, like he had thirty fewer innings than Zach Gallen, thirty six fewer innings than Logan Webb. That's a lot of innings, and I know he had a an ERA one run lower than Logan Webb, and that's obviously where it comes from two two five to three two five. But the gap in innings and also when you just look under the hood of just like quality of contact and things like that, I would have thought it would have closed the gap more. And this is where I will will give a take that I think it's probably uh, I'm in the, 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 the minority Ooh. on on this one. Yeah, but let's go. I actually think having forcing the writers to publish their votes has made the process less interesting. Because I do think there with social media, I think there's like we've seen it before where writers get bullied for like voting for someone if they if like a certain subset of fans doesn't like it and i still think blake snell would have won and i'm not saying that like i think it wouldn't surprise me if some people were like you know what like i don't actually think that blake snell deserves a Cy young but is no one else had an era within like 0.75 and he's gonna win anyway so i don't want to deal with the hassle of like getting harassed by people for being an idiot so i'm just gonna vote for him matt myers hates transparency and voting is what you're saying do you feel the same about the hall of fame ballot um, yeah, I kind of do. I kind of think like if we, if we trust you to do this, if we're saying like, you know, you know, it's, if I trust you to do this, like I'm going to trust you, right? It's like either I do or I don't. And I think that like forcing people to publicize their votes, it's, I think it's made the process in some ways. I think, you know, I think social media has made the process a bit more toxic and the fact that the votes are publicized makes the results like it makes it like i could see you as a voter i've never we've talked about this before we're both in the new york chapter which means we never get to vote which is fine i'm not advocating for because i'm kind of glad honestly like i'm 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 glad I, w- I don't have to deal with this this problem of like casting a vote and getting like harassed by a fan base usually it's happened when it's close we've seen it when there's like one voter who like does something a little bit different like and it's cost someone and we've seen people fl- you know flip out like kate upton flipping so out Roca when just Alonso. Right. Wasn't that the one, the rookie of the year when it was like 29 for Soroka and one for Alonzo or something like but that? At least Alonzo won. There was the one year where like one person voted for, didn't have Justin Verlander on their ballot and he lost. And so he doesn't have, no, now he only has what, three Cy Youngs instead of four. And Kate Upton like went after the writer on social media. And it's like, and then they're just like, it's like, come on, you know, like it's, so that's, that's, that's why I'm at this. That's my somewhat maybe unpopular take. Going back to Snell. You're going to respond to my take? No, I was going to correct myself. 29 for Alonzo and one for Soroka is what I meant. Um, I think I disagree with you, but I, I respect your opinion. And you're clearly right about social media making everything more toxic. So I don't <laughs> think there's any argument on that point. The one thing I will say about going back to Snell for a second, 
it is absolutely wild to me that he has two Cy Young Awards. Like, you know, like in, when you look at the list of people who have won multiple Cy Young Awards, for the most part, it's like, you know, Hall of Fame type pitchers. There's a couple in there that are sort of weird. There's like Brett Saberhagen, who's basically the opposite pitcher of, of, uh, of like Snell, like throws only strikes, um, works quick, that kind of guy. But uh, it, is, it is wild to me that he now has two Cy Young Awards. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting too because he's going to be a free agent or he is a free agent and I'm still not sure anybody knows what to make of him. <laughs> you know, like this is the sort of season where everything sort of went right. Like the defense behind him was great and he played in a pitcher friendly ballpark and he has like the highest, not, I don't think it's the highest, but it's one of the highest left on base percentages in decades, just like in terms of how many runners came around to score. And like so many of those runners he put there because he walked everybody. <laughs> That's where we get into the underlying metrics. And it's like, what do you believe going forward? I'm not really sure I know the answer to that, but um, obviously he's going to do well in free agency. One other thing I wanted to mention about rookie, since you had made the point that uh, Carroll and Henderson were the top two prospects uh, in the land as uh, entering the season. And most of us, I, probably both of us personally, had picked them to win the rookie of the year. It's funny to remember that it's not just clear now, but it was clear a year ago because both those guys came up at the end of last season and got into like 30 something games, but like just barely not enough to ruin their rookie eligibility. So in addition to it being, yeah, like highly regarded prospects, these are guys we'd already seen in the major leagues for a month and they both kind of performed well. And if that doesn't give you extra confidence to pick them, uh, I don't know what would like it. I cannot contemplate a time where the preseason choices were so obvious and then lived up to the hype. <laughs> like that's that's exactly what happened. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Matt, I know not a whole lot has happened in free agency yet, as we talked about last week. I think the trade market might be kind of holding a lot of that up. I expect it to be a very active trade market. But one of the clearly top free agents is Cody Bellinger, uh, probably the best position player setting aside Otani of a relatively weak position player class. There's a lot of starting pitchers. There's not a lot of bats. And he's coming off a very, very good first and potentially lone season with the Cubs. He had 26 homers. He hit 307. OPS plus of 133, uh, making him 33% better than average. He's a good center fielder. He's a good first baseman. If you go back to his past, he's a rookie of the year and MVP award winner, right? And he's only 28. You might think, wow, checks all the boxes. This guy is going to do great in free agency. And I do think he'll do well in free agency. And yet what I can't get past, in addition to the fact that, you know, he's hurt the previous two years and didn't perform well, the Dodgers non-tendered him less than a year ago. Uh, it's the fact that if you look at the underlying metrics, he had a 10th percentile hard hit rate. That means 90% of other batters had a equal or better hard hit rate than he did. And I know a lot of people are like, well, I don't care about that. I care that I watched all the home runs. And it's like, I'm not trying to pretend this was a fluke or just luck or that he's not a good player. It's just, that's hard to get past. If you were a team potentially willing to give him, I don't know, 150 $200 million less than one year after the Dodgers said, no, thanks. This is going to be so complicated. How do you look at it? I don't really know, to be honest with you. I mean, I read, you wrote a piece about this and like, you look at the list of names of players. I think you had players with a, a similar hard hit rate and who slugged over 500. And it was like, not, I mean, there was Altuve who's okay. He's Altuve. And, you know, we know what he can do with, um, 
the Crawford boxes and also the fact that I think that like his bat control is clearly like on a whole other level. And then you had guys like Zach Cozart, um, <laughs> who clearly didn't ever live up to that again. Um, who, who were some of the other names on there? I can't recall, but the, Zach Cozart was one that jumped out to me. So there was, there's only three other guys who've ever done it, right? So since 2015, a guy who slugged 500 or better, who had a hard hit rate uh, of 31% or, or lower, which is what Bellinger just did. There are only three guys. Altuve, as you said. Cozart in 2017, which was a huge homer happy year, and he played in Cincinnati, which is like the homer-friendliest ballpark on the planet. And Eduardo Escobar in 2019, which was the only year even more homer happy <laughs> in 2017, right? So it's like... If you're taking away those two years, you're left with Hall of Famer Jose Altuve, who has succeeded in a very specific way. And so this is it's almost impossible for Bellinger to do what he did. And I went through and I'm like, why? I want I want to know why uh, I came to two things. One is he's got good speed and he's not afraid to use it. Right. There were a number of times I would see a ball like a single up the middle or, you know, maybe down the lines where it's like most guys would probably take the single and he did, you know, hustle doubles are cool. Like respect. That's, that's not fake. Like he did that. He turned one base into two. I also found maybe unsurprisingly some really embarrassing defensive plays. Uh, There's one against Miami where the right fielder falls down like 35 feet away from the ball. And since he didn't come close, it's not an error, right? It's a double. That kind of stuff can happen to anybody. I found like four or five of those plays. What happened here, though, um, I thought the best way to do this is you've got his slugging percentage, which was 525. You've got his expected slugging based on the quality of contact, which was 437. So that's an 88 point gap. I wanted to go back and find other guys who had done this. And what I did was um, I went back to the start of StatCast and I found 17 other guys with a gap that large in a season that precedes a full season. That's important, right? I can't judge 2019 guys on what happened in 2020 because that was a 60 game season guys from this past season. We just don't know yet. 15 of the other 17 did not match the first season's expected slugging in the second season. Right. And so that's some of those guys were like obvious career years where everything's going great. Like Bryce Harper's amazing 2015, even beyond his normal years, you know, Scooter Jeanette <laughs> playing with Cozart in 2017. And then a couple of like rookies who had Great splashes that never were repeated. Miguel Andujar, Alanis Diaz. One guy managed to do it. He was responsible for both the other seasons. That was Didi Gregorius, who never hit the ball hard, but was serving like 340-foot home runs into the short porch in Yankee Stadium. So ultimately, like this group of 17 guys in their their big year, they slugged 520 uh, with an expected of 419. And then the next year, they actually slugged 434. So I kind of come down on the sense of, it's not 100% a fluke because I respect the fact that uh, he cut down his strikeout rate by a lot, which is great. I respect that he can run, but I also don't think he's slugging 525 like this again. So you got to kind of find the happy medium ground between I don't think absolutely I don't think he's as bad as he was the last two years. Like I think he was hurt. I think he was playing through injuries. I think he's not a 33% above average hitter. I think he's a 10% above average hitter, which if you can play center field and first base, like that's valuable for sure. It's just I don't think it's the guy we just saw. Well, that's the thing about the strikeouts, right? Because I think that that guy, he had a lot of credit for cutting down his strikeouts, which is real, right? In 2022, his strikeout rate was 27%. 2021, it was 27%. This year was 16%, which, okay, that's that's a real, real reduction. Real reduction, and like he made more contact, two-strike approach. But then you look back at 2019, which was like his MVP year, his strikeout rate was 16, 16%. Like he used to do this but also like absolutely crushed the ball, right? That year his, you know, his expected slugging was 635, almost 200 points higher than it was 
<laughs> this year. So it's hard to make heads and tails of it. Now, like, again, there's always the chance, right, that like maybe – I think it was was it a, was it a shoulder was it a shoulder we don't was it in the shoulder injury yes oh do you don't remember the famous way and he got that he got oh hurt. it was the the, the oh yeah it was he was doing the the, was the bash brothers PK thing Hernandez in the 2020 postseason they did like a high five and then that's the famous one but the one that people don't actually remember which I think is as damaging is early the next year he fractured his I can't remember it was his his shin something in his lower leg he should not have been playing but the dodgers are shorthanded so like you know to his credit he played through it i think that really hurt his stats for that year so i think that's like the there i could see a team being like okay well maybe actually this is just like a multi-year process and that like maybe that player could still be uncovered and that you know last year was him sort of coming out of you know finally being you know 90 percent healthy for the first time since 2019 or since 2020 and this will be the real you know maybe now like the 2019 version of of cody bellinger but man that is that is a really big risk to take because there's also the chance right that he's just like a good player who's commanding, you know, $30 million a year and might get it because there's not a lot of good position players on the market. Yeah, he's in a good spot because of that. But, you know, a lot of these contracts are not just about talent, right? It's also about reliability. So, like, you think about last year, uh, Aaron Judge had a great year, but he'd had several great years before that. You know, Trey Turner had been a star for half a decade at that point. Bellinger's had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, one thing I, I heard that I thought was really interesting, and I dug into this too in the article, was you know, he's got a great two-strike approach, right? With two strikes, he's just trying to make contact, get the ball in play, and not enough guys do that. I actually do think there is something to that. The only thing with that is that uh, if you're if you're thinking that artificially deflates his hard hit metric because he's just not trying to crush on two strikes, um, which I think is a valid approach. So I, I split it up, right? Uh, on two strikes, he had a 25% hard hit rate, which is you know not that great. Uh, but if you take those out, what you're left with is before two strikes, he has a 36% hard hit rate, which is still like, you know, 25th percentile or whatever. Like even at his peak when he was crushing, he was never like a Giancarlo Stan X of velocity monster. But here, here's the other thing I noticed that I thought was really fascinating. Everyone talked about two strikes. And the more I looked into this, the more I, I started to think it's not about two strikes. It's more about high leverage, right? So leverage means the context of the game situation, score, the inning, runners on base. You know, it's if you're in a one run game in the ninth, that's a lot different than a 10 run game in the fifth, right? If you look at his low and medium and high leverage splits, uh, 16 home runs and low leverage situations, 10 and medium, zero and high, which was absolutely nuts to me. And I think that is where the change in approach is coming from. Because in high leverage situations, he had a 51% ground ball rate, it's 32% in lower leverage. In a high leverage, 36% pull, 47% in medium, and 42%. Like he was clearly trying a different approach there, which I'm fully in favor of to an extent, right? If it's like you're down by one, run in the ninth, get get the run home. I don't care how hard you fall. Like win the game. Totally get that. But if you look at his OPS, low leverage, 965, medium, 841, high. 604 like if there was a change in approach it made him meaningfully worse which i guess you could flip around and say if he just doesn't do that then maybe he'll be great i don't know i'm glad i'm not the one who has to make these decisions yeah well so i think i mean this is a this is a a good segue to the next topic i want to talk about which was like the qualifying offers right there were seven players who got qualifying offers and you'd written a piece beforehand predicting who would get them and who would accept them and i think you were pretty close like the ones who you predicted who would get a qualifying offer you were right on and they all declined it as you predicted. Those were Shohei Otani, Matt Chapman, Cody Bellinger, 
Blake Snell, Josh Hader, Aaron Nola, and Sonny Gray, right? So I was off off by one. I did say the the Marlins would give Jorge Soler a qualifying offer, and they chose not to, so I'll, I'll wear that. Okay, so you were you were close. I'll give you credit. Um, but then I, when I look at these 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 players, right, and like I think what's important to remember is under the current collective bargaining agreement, the type of draft pick compensation you have to give up when you sign a player who rejected a qualifying offer. Right? There's three tiers. There's the teams who pay the, pay luxury tax. There's or the competitive balance tax. There's the pay the competitive balance tax. There's um, the teams that receive competitive balance payments, and then there's all other clubs, right? And if you're a team that pays into the competitive balance tax, you have to give up your second highest draft pick, your fifth highest draft pick, and a million dollars in international bonus pool money. Now, for a free agent of Otani's caliber, that is like kind of a no-brainer. And like last year, we saw a number of free agents who that kind of decision was kind of a no-brainer. But this year, when I look at the teams who are in the competitive balance tax, Blue Jays, Braves, Dodgers, Mets, Padres, Phillies, Rangers, Yankees. And I look at all the non-Otani free agents. I'm like, these are the teams that are theoretically usually in on big free agents. And I'm thinking like, are any of these teams really willing to give up that kind of compensation for these players? Like, I think Matt Chapman, it's like no chance. Um, Josh Hader, that seems like a lot. Um, then you go, you get to Sonny Gray and Aaron Nola, maybe Nola, just because he's a little younger. Like, I don't know what's what's your what's your take on this? Because I think that really could have a huge effect on the market. Just like these guys aren't super. Other than Otani, they're not. They all have big question marks, and that's a lot to give up in addition to the money you're going to have to pay them. Uh, yes and no. I, I think the first point that's important to make is you can you can resign your own guy without having to worry about any of that, right? So if Matt Chapman goes back to the Blue Jays, the, no issue, right? Aaron Nola to the Phillies. I think your point is valid. I just think the position player market is so, so thin. You may not have a choice, right? We can talk all we want about the risk we see in Cody Bellinger. Matt Chapman too, because he crushed in April and it was not that good the next couple of months. You don't sign those guys. Where are you going for bets? Like who... Who are you going to find that's going to make a meaningful difference uh, unless you go for a trade? You know, the bats, uh, Otani is on his own stratosphere and he's not going to play a position. So forget about him for a minute. I just I don't know how you can say, well, I'm not going to go after one of these qualifying offer bats, yet I still plan on meaningfully upgrading my lineup. Like that's that's tough to do. You think if the Yankees have their heart set on Cody Bellinger, they're going to pass because of this? I don't know that I see them making that choice, even if you can argue that maybe they should. Well, I mean, just going back to what we just talked about with Bellinger, I think that like it'd be very easy for a team to talk themselves out of it. And I say this recognizing that like you know the next best bat on the free agent market might be JD Martinez or or the aforementioned Jorge Soler for that matter, um, or you know the, the the big sort of X factor is Jung Hoo Lee from the KBO. But I think it could really slow. Down. I just think if nothing else. I think it could really slow down the market because I think there's these teams that are generally like the teams that are. There's a reason they pay into the luxury tax, right? They're the teams that go after free agents. And then you look at this this class, and there's other than Otani, it's like I look back at last year, it felt like you had, you know, who who do you have last year? You had Judge, you had Turner, uh, you had Bogart. Stops. Yeah. You, you know, year before that, you had Seeger and Semi. Like, I, it's. So I think that that you know right now we we're, we're sitting here. It's almost Thanksgiving. We've talked in the office how it's like no one's like usually there's like a few th- things are starting to move, 
and nothing's moving yet. There's been nothing happening. Maybe it's because they're waiting for trades. I don't know. There's a few new heads of pres- new heads of baseball operations and teams, so maybe that's part of it too. That like some of these folks, whether it's Stearns or Bendix or Breslow, are trying to kind of get their bearings and figure things out and who they want to target. But things are going really slow, and I can't help but think that that is a factor and that some of these guys are going to be the guys who are waiting. And maybe to your point, could be this could be the path that leads Matt Chapman back to um, back to Toronto. Although I think I've seen him linked to the Giants and they are in the they're in the middle tier. So like they, they they are a team that would not have 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 as onerous of a penalty if they ended up signing him. So it's not that there won't be any market. I just think that like some of these traditional spenders may be pretty lukewarm on this group. Like I know for a fact the Mets generally the last couple of years have been maybe to their detriment, but like have avoided the guys with qualifying offer because they wanted to brief up their farm system. And I can't imagine they're alone in that. Yeah, Matt, Matt Chapman reportedly has a great relationship with new Giants manager Bob Melvin from their days together in Oakland. And man, the Giants could use a third baseman. Um, I, I, I think there's a couple of things. I think everything you said is true as far as like the slowness of the market. I think there's a number of clubs who aren't quite sure what's going to happen with their television broadcasts over the next couple of years, which throws a wrench into things for sure. And I, I think the disagreement I would have, not with you, but with the take I've seen is um, Otani is such a big fish that his choice is holding everything up. And I just don't think that's true. Like I just, there's only a handful of teams that are really going to be in that race. And that, that's not going to stop, you know, I don't know, the Guardians, right? They can still go out and sign guys. They're not going to sign Shoya Otani. Um, there's another team we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about Juan Soto and the Padres. back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrell and Matt Myers. One of the ongoing sagas of the winter, as we talked about last week, uh, in our estimation, is not where does Shohei Otani sign. It's if and where does Juan Soto get traded to. Uh, as we've talked about a number of the times over the years, he is essentially present-day Ted Williams, right? Even last year, got off to a slow start with San Diego, still ended up with a 410 on base, a 5 19 slugging percentage, 35 home runs in his age 24 season. That's the thing. He came up so young. He turned 25, like on the right before the World Series started. That's how young he is. Padres didn't play very well last year, obviously. Unfortunately, there's another question mark now that uh, their owner, Peter Seidler, passed away this week, very sadly, uh, because not only did he make it clear that he loved the town and the team and was willing to do whatever it took to win. I was uh, impressed by some of the stories I read about his outreach with the local homeless. I did, had no idea about any of that, and I respected that. So that's a great loss for all baseball, for San Diego, and for the Padres. And, but it's sort of, now what? We don't really know what direction they're going to go. We don't know who's going to manage the team. And so it seems pretty obvious that Juan Soto's name is going to come up. I personally would not have thought that Juan Soto would have gotten traded one time, <laughs> but he did. What if he gets traded again? Before 25, literally Ted Williams, and he might get traded again. That, how does that happen? Yeah, I, I, I was wondering this, so I asked um, our colleague Andrew Simon to dig into this for me. And it's pretty wild. Like if, if, if Juan Soto does get traded, it will essentially be unprecedented for a player this good to be traded, to be, have played for three teams before getting to their, to reach, through their age 25 season. Just so for a little bit of context, right, for, for the, they've only been, 
with right now Juan Soto has 28 career war, according to baseball reference, 28.6 career war, according to baseball reference. And the only players through age 25 with 20 plus career war, they were all 19th century players, including Cleveland Spiders legend Cupid Childs. Right. This is yes. what we're talking. We're talking about guys from the 1800s. This is like a totally different like universe from what we'd have now. And if you want to go just by most war AL NL history for um, players through their age 25 se- season, the best ever is Milt Stock, who I'd never heard of. Um, and then right behind him is Roger Maris and Greg Jeffries, who are at famous names, not Hall of Famers, and also were at less than 14 career war through their age 25 season. Juan Soto is twice that. So like if Juan Soto gets traded, the fact that he will have played for three teams through his age 25 season basically has never happened before. And it goes to show that like when you're that good, as young as Juan Soto, you don't get traded because teams hold on to you with dear life. I, I can see this from both sides, right? There's the part of me that says he's 100% getting traded. Right, because they may not want to uh, pay his salary. They may not want to lose him for nothing after free agency next year. They're definitely going to trade him. And then there's the part of me that's like, well, you're, if you're going to try to win this year, you you want Juan Soto on your team because he's amazingly good. And here's here's the kicker, right? With one year left before free agency, the return you get for him is not what you would expect it to be, right? I mean, that's that is the big thing here. You're not trading for five, six years of Juan Soto. You're trading for one year and the possibility he's not going to sign long term with anybody before he gets to free agency. That that will drive the return down like by a lot. And that's and that, so we go back to the Bellinger conversation, right? And like I know trading is a lot more complicated because you really you have to, you know, it's it's about relationships. It's about, you know, the other team knowing and liking your prospects. But like if I'm a, if I'm a GM and I want to improve my lineup, I would much rather give up the prospect capital to get Juan Soto for a year, knowing that a year from now I can give him a qualifying offer and recoup. If, even if I don't, even if he doesn't sign back with me, I can recoup some of that prospect value in in, the, in terms of draft picks. I just have way more faith in him being an offensive force than Cody Bellinger. So that's that's kind of where where, where I'm at. I, yeah, and like I, mean, I don't go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say I'm going to I'm going to give you two trade proposals, and I want to hear if you would take either one. Okay. Would you trade Juan Soto for Alex Verdugo, Jeter Downs, and Connor Wong while also getting David Price off your books? Would you make that trade? Um, who am, who am, I? am I? Am I the Padres? No, that that is the return the Red Sox got for trading I, one I year know, the Mets. Exactly. Would, would you trade Juan Soto for Carson Kelly, Luke Weaver, Andrew Young, and a competitive balance round balance round B pick? That is what the d Scott for Paul Goldschmidt, is it not? That's exactly right. And this is kind of the point here, right? There's just, I don't want to say you don't get anything because like Alex Verdugo has been a competent player. Connor Wong was the starting catcher last year. It's not like they got nothing, right? But for one year of a guy, it just never as much as you want it to be. Like that, that's got to factor in. And if I'm the Padres, I'm like, I hear you about the qualifying offer. I totally do. Maybe I just see what happens in the first half of the season and see if we're any good. And if not, I think I can still get a lot for him midseason. That's a fair point. That's a, you know, that's, I think you make a fair point, but I think that this is one of these, this is, you know, it goes back to why the market's taking long. Cause I think there's probably a lot of teams that are like, I th- we think we can probably want soda from the Padres. How can we do that? And we might kind of have to wait it out and f- see where some chips fall, but it would be good if someone would sign so that we had more pressing news to talk about. Well, I agree with you on that. All right. Would you trade Juan Soda for Dave Engel, Paul Hartzell, Brett Havens, and Ken Landro? 
I'm going to have to tell you what that one is. <laughs> that is what the, uh, the uh, Minnesota Twins got when they traded the last year of Rod Carew to the Angels in 1970. <laughs> These things never work out great. I'll give you a better example. Um, the Pirates did get Brian Reynolds when they traded the last year of Andrew McCutcheon away. Although Andrew McCutcheon was much older at that point and post-peak and certainly not you know, entering his age 25 season as Juan Soto is. So I, I'm underselling this a little, right? If they traded the last year of Juan Soto, would they get something good? Like, of course, he's Juan Soto. But I don't think it's a franchise-altering trade. Like, you're not going to Baltimore and say, hey, can we get Jackson Holiday? Because they laugh you out of the room. Like, it doesn't work like that. I think you're right. Although I think the lack of bats on the market could end up helping them in, in this in this in this uh in this climate yeah I, the other thing to consider with the padres is they have lost almost their entire pitching staff blake snell's a free agent seth lugo's a free agent nick martinez is a free agent michael walk is a free agent josh Hader is a free agent joe musgrove missed the last two months or so with an arm injury you darvish is 37 ish years old like every team needs pitching right the padres really need pitching like really really need pitching and you can't get all that through free agency, not with every other team needing pitching. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We will not see you next week because of the holiday. We will see you the week after that. Thank you. Thank you.